You'll join me once again in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. If you want to use the blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 939. Romans 1.16, part 2. We started here last week, and the title of our sermon this morning is The People of God. And our keywords for our worshipers and training are Jew, Greek, and people. Now, Thomas Edison is a name that I'm sure all of us are at least familiar with. He's been called the father of invention. When Edison was alive, he filed 1,093 patents in the United States alone. When news got out, however, that Edison was developing the first practical electric light bulb, no one was impressed with him. A British Parliament uh, committee noted in 1878 that Edison's light bulb was, quote, good enough for our transatlantic friends, but unworthy of the attention of practical or scientific men. Similarly, a chief engineer for the British Post Office said, the subdivision of the electric light is an absolute ignis Fatus, in other words, a fairy tale, a complete sham that it would ever amount to anything. Or Walt Disney, in 1919, Walt Disney was fired from his job at the Kansas City Star newspaper because the general editor said he, quote, lacked imagination and had no good ideas. <clears throat> Margaret Mitchell Maybe you know her name, the author of Gone with the Wind. She submitted her manuscript and had it rejected over 40 times to publishers before it landed on bookshelves and almost immediately became a bestseller, winning a Pulitzer Prize. In 1978, Michael Jordan was just another kid in the gym, along with 50 or so of his classmates trying out for the Emsley A. Laney High School varsity basketball team, and there were 15 roster spots, and Jordan, then 15 years old as a sophomore, was 5 foot 10 inches and could not dunk the basketball, and he did not make the team. He said it was embarrassing not making the team, and he went home and locked himself in his room and cried. Thomas Edison, Walt Disney, Margaret Mitchell, Michael Jordan. These are not names that we often associate with rejection, but all of them, every single one of them, and so many more stories just like theirs of people who were absolutely the best at what they did, but they were rejected along the way. It was assumed that they simply were not good enough. You could add the Beatles and Elvis Presley to the list, even Ed Sheeran, who was once told by a, re a recording producer that he was a chubby ginger, so he would never make it in the recording industry. Part of that's true. <laughs> but quite, quite often, these kinds of stories are used as sort of motivation to encourage us to think about these things, and they went through this, and you too can go through these challenges and make it. You may not get what you want today, but it, it takes time and you'll get there. I mean, look at Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg. They dropped out of college and some of the, now they're some of the richest men in the world. But the reason we know these stories is because they are remarkable. They're not normal. This isn't the normal reality of life, is it? 
far more often than not, we are acquainted with rejection. College rejection letters, getting passed over for job promotions, not being one of the cool kids in a certain social group, never having your ideas listened to in meetings, not getting the ball passed to you to make the winning shot. This is the story of most of life for most people. We might all have a single moment or two in our lives when we really stood out for our greatness, but it's not common. It's not normal that we would even be accepted in this life and the things that we do. This life is filled with rejection, and we just have to admit the reality that to live life in a fallen world is cruel and difficult sometimes, and often we are rejected. And so I thought I would give you that this morning as a little bit of encouragement. (laughs) But that's reality, isn't it? I've had my fair share of rejections in life. I know the feeling. I know what it's like to to assume a certain something is going to pan out in a certain way, and it doesn't. It, It feels awful. It's a heavy weight on your chest sometimes. And depending on what it is, it can drain all of our encouragement. It can drain all of our excitement completely. We want to be included. We want to be accepted. Remember last Lord's Day, we we talked about being shamed and what it's like to be shamed and all the things that we do to try to not be shamed. We want to be unashamed. Our desire is to be accepted, to be included, to be one among others that is understood and liked. And so this morning, we're going, to, we're going to think more about the verse we focused on last week, Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, and we're, we're going to pick up where we left off on this very important verse in the book of Romans and to continue to move our way away from shame and to start to move into a place of inclusion and acceptance. You see, all of us know what it's like to be rejected and to be left out. But one of the glorious realities of the gospel, which is the power of God onto salvation, is who it is for and what it does. No longer ashamed, but included. No longer rejected, but accepted. No longer on the outside, but always and forever on the inside. No rejection letters from Christ when we come to Him in humility. So let's read again Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now this morning, as we think more about this verse, we're going to talk and think about the people of God. Paul makes reference to the people of God in two ways here. First, he refers to everyone who believes in general, and then he moves from that general statement to something a bit more specific, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, so we're going to take it piece by piece. And the first thing for us to see is this. The gospel is for everyone who believes, and yes, that also means you. 
Paul is highlighting the efficacy of the gospel to do what God intends for it to do. In, in other words, the gospel is effective. And remember, he showed us that it is effective in that it is the power of God. It is the power of God in display. It is the power of God at work. And when we have an encounter with the power of God in the gospel, salvation occurs. We said last week, one of the primary things that sets Christianity apart from every other religion and every other philosophy is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is utterly unique in that it comes by grace alone, and it powerfully transforms all who believe without any performance of works or any keeping of the law. Remember, we said the gospel is not about what you do, but what has already been done for you on your behalf. There's this significant distinction to be made between the law and the gospel. Now, we must hold them both in in unity, and we must love them both and find their usefulness. But the law, in and of itself, says, do this and you shall live. But the gospel says, this has already been done for you so that you can live. And Paul's highlighting the uniqueness here of the gospel. He deals with the law significantly through the book of Romans, but here he's focused on the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. And it is not for everyone who does enough work, everyone who upholds the law, everyone who has good Reformed theology, everyone who doesn't smoke or drink or chew or date those who do, No, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So the first big important thing to see is that this is is not what we need in terms of knowledge or works. I don't need to know more or do more in order to experience the power of God in the gospel. I don't need knowledge. I need power. You can know all the right things and you can talk about them all day long, but how can you even do what is right? You don't have the enabling power in yourself to do those things. You cannot fulfill the law on your own accord. So knowing the law is of no ultimate value in and of itself. But Paul's telling us, I have a gospel And I'm sharing this with you that I am writing to you about. And here's the thing about the gospel. It works. It is effective because it is the power of God. And here's another part that is equally amazing. He says, everyone who believes will be saved. Have you ever considered that reality? You know what rejection is. We all know what rejection is. We've all been turned down at some point. We've all been sent away. But the gospel is 100% fail-proof. If you come to Christ with a true heart of faith and humility, you will not be turned away. Listen, that is for you who are adulterers, homosexuals, drunkards, murderers, thieves, liars, black, white, Asian, young, old, male, female, rich, poor, 
no matter your family, no matter your background, no matter your education, no matter your language, no matter your culture, no matter your criminal record, no matter your reputation, the gospel is for everyone who believes. The good news that Christ died for our sins and that He rose from the dead to give eternal life, and that salvation is by grace, through faith alone, and all of it is for everyone who believes. Do you believe? And if not, the Lord Jesus Christ is calling you, come to me, come to me, free of charge, free of obligation, free of work, free of prerequisites. Come to me and I will give you everlasting life and rest and peace and hope and joy. It doesn't get any sweeter than that, friend. That's the greatest gift you could ever receive. It is Christ. The greatest gift is a gift indeed, free and effective. Any and all of the rejection you've ever known and you've ever experienced in this life, and some of it has been horrible, I'm sure of it, none of that will be added to you when you come to Christ. In fact, it will all be taken away. There is no one who would come to Christ and be sent away when they come to Christ by faith. Now listen, because some of you still do not actually believe this. Some of you are here and you are Christians and you're sure that you are a Christian, but in your mind you're just sort of still hanging on a thread. But that's not the gospel. You believe that you sort of snuck in under the radar, but, but God didn't mean to save you or, or now that He has, He's stuck with you. But that's not what happened. The Lord knew you and He chose to save you before the foundations of the earth. You may even deny God's omniscience and think, well, if He really knew I was going to turn out this way, even as a Christian, that I would be stubborn and that every Sunday I would sit here and I would confess the same exact sins that I confessed the week before. If He knew that, then I would have been rejected. I know, I know it says to everyone who believes, that actually means everybody but me. Maybe you think that way. Don't do that. Don't think that way. You're accusing God of being a liar. God's not a liar. His Word is faithful and true in every way. His Word is clear. Everyone who believes. And yes, that even means you. And this salvation is a sure thing. When you belong to Christ, you are saved to the uttermost all the way until you are finally and completely glorified and without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. This is not something that is contingent. This is not something that may or may not work. This is God working. This is the power of God and the work of God as it begins. No man can stop. I've told you before about the 18th century man named William Cooper. You know his work 
more than you probably know his name, the hymn writer and poet. He wrote thousands of hymns in his lifetime that have endured through the ages. We sing many of his songs. There is a fountain filled with blood, or God moves in a mysterious way. Some of the best songs that we sing is the church. But William Cooper, as great as he was at putting rich theological truth to lyric and to music, was deeply, deeply depressed. And even though he understood and deeply believed what the Bible says is true, and even had an experience of grace in his life when he became a Christian in his early 20s, he didn't always believe that God actually saved him. He wrote in his journal that when he encountered the power of God in the gospel, it was one of the few experiences in his life when he said he felt the warmth of the sun on a cold day, and he knew that something wonderful had happened. And yet, it wasn't long before he started writing about his despair and his hopelessness of life. But now with a very clear and keen understanding of the Scriptures, which only added to the complexity. Throughout his life, Cooper attempted suicide at least four different times. And after each time, he was filled with this overwhelming sense of guilt He recognized his sin, he recognized the displeasure of his sin before the eyes of God, and he lived his life as a sad and broken man, and he was even sent at one point by his father to live in in a sane asylum. Well, John Newton, who we talked about a few weeks ago, the former slave trader turned hymn writer and pastor and abolitionist, he, he befriended William Cooper. And he encouraged him. He, he visited him, and he wrote letters to him, and they began correspondence through letters. And, and Cooper wrote to Newton as well. And in, in one of his letters to, to Newton, to John Newton, this is what Cooper wrote. He said, "'Loaded as my life is with despair, I have no such comfort as would result from a supposed probability of better things to come were it once ended.'" You will tell me that this cold gloom will be succeeded by a cheerful spring and endeavor to encourage me to hope for a spiritual change resembling it, but it will be lost labor. Nature revives again, but a soul once slain lives no more. My friends, I know, expect that I shall see yet again. They think it necessary to the existence of divine truth that he who once had possession of it should never finally lose it. I admit the solidity of this reasoning in every case but my own. And why not in my own? I forestall the answer, God's ways are mysterious, and He gives no account of His matters. An answer that would serve my purpose as well as theirs that used it. There is a mystery in my destruction, and in time it shall be explained. Do you understand what he's communicating there? Some of you probably resonate with what William Cooper wrote. He is affirming this reality of the Bible's teaching that all who come to Christ will be saved. And he believed that once a person comes to Christ, believing the gospel by faith, that they are saved and they will not lose their salvation. They will not fall away from God. But listen to what he said again. He said, I admit the solidity of this reasoning in every case, but my own. You see, he's not arguing that God didn't save him. He believes that he did, but what Cooper was disputing is the truth of what he knows from Scripture and that it applies to him personally. 
In his mind, he was the lone exception in all the universe to God's promises and God's truth. He was, in his mind, a reprobate, though once he was among God's elect. Now, William Cooper had serious depression problems, and, and living in our day and in our world, he would have had access to medical care that was unavailable to him. But depressed or not, there are many Christians, some of you whom I have talked to, who think like William Cooper thought. And I want to continue to press this home for us because we will all have days of doubt. We will all have days of struggle. We will all have days when we are losing against the world and the flesh and the devil. But we must remember that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Have you believed on Christ by faith? The power of God is in that gospel. So don't you dare think it is not for you or that it didn't or it couldn't work for you. God is far more powerful than you will ever be. And when God works, the gospel works. When God saves you, you are saved forever. Yes, even you. Look, I I don't deny that your sin is great. Mine is too. But the power of God in the gospel is far greater far more powerful. Well, what else does Paul show us in this text? He shows us that the gospel is what unites and unifies God's people throughout all history. Paul writes, the the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then he writes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, this has certainly caused more than a little disagreement as to what exactly Paul means and specifically why he emphasizes to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. We'll actually deal with this extensively when we get more into Romans 11 one day, whenever that will be, but it's, it's worth dealing with here a bit because how we view this will really have a lot to do with how we understand the build-up to Romans 11. In, in general, as we walk through Paul's letter to the Romans, you will notice that we're going to think about Israel and the church in somewhat interchangeable ways. That we'll talk about the church as Israel, we'll talk about, the, as, uh, talk about Israel as the church. And this is intentional because we understand that there is organic unity between the Old Testament and Israel and the New Testament church. How so? Well, believing Gentiles have been adopted into or grafted into the family of Abraham by faith in Christ. Like Abraham, we believed God and it was counted to us as righteousness. Gentile believers are made to be a part of Israel, and so we inherit the promises given to Abraham, and by extension, the Jewish believers in both the Old and the New Covenants. So, we're not separate or distinct from the Jews. The church does not replace the Jews. No, we are united with the Old Covenant people of God, and so now the two have become one. Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them, and so are you. 
that song is loaded with theological importance. I want to read to you from our Confession of Faith, the 1689 London Baptist. This is what it says. I think it's very helpful here. It says in chapter 26, in paragraph 1, the universal church, which may be called invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. So here's what that's saying, and I agree with this 100%. The full number of God's people from all ages and every nation make up one single church, one body of Christ. There is no distinction between believing Jews and the Old Covenant and Christian Jews and Gentiles in the New Covenant. All of God's people stand with equal status, unified as one people, the church throughout all time, the people of God. So true Old Covenant Israel and the New Testament church are not two separate peoples existing alongside or in opposition to one another. So, what does Paul mean to the Jew first and also to the Greek? This isn't an assertion in terms of priority or importance. I could see how it's easy to assume so, but Paul is not emphasizing that the Jews are more important or that they're more significant in God's overall plan of salvation. No, Paul is emphasizing the fact that God uses the Jewish people to begin and to build His church. So, so we must never deny that in this sense, Gentile Christians must remember Paul's words that we will, and we're going to look at this more in depth in Romans 11, but here's what he says here. He says, do not boast over non-Christian Jews. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but you support, but the root supports you. In other words, God used ethnic Israel to bring about the birth of His church. So don't lord your faith over them. Don't boast over them. Don't be anti-Semitic toward them. But also recognize that at the same time that non-believing ethnic Jews are in need of Christ in just the same way that you and I are in need of Christ and in just the same way that Abraham and Isaac and Jeremiah and Isaiah and all of the Old Covenant saints were in need of Christ. We have no moral superiority over ethnic Israel, and Paul reminds us in chapter 11 to not act arrogantly toward the unbelieving Jews under divine judgment because the very same thing could happen to our church. So, who are God's people then? Everyone who believes. It started with the Jews. It has continued on into the Gentiles, the Greeks. This gospel, this divine revelation of truth, this announcement of the good news of Jesus Christ's perfect life and sinner's death and burial and glorious resurrection will save all who believe because it is the power of God. And so to whom shall we preach the gospel? To all men, women, and children of every tongue, tribe, people group, and nation on the earth without discrimination. That's who. 
The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, and it is the gospel that brings us together, united as one people. There are very few things I love more than being able to travel around the world to churches in other countries and preach the gospel and to be welcomed and loved and be invited as a brother in Christ. Not as some far-off stranger, not someone everyone is skeptical of, but as a member of God's covenant family right alongside all of them, no matter what we look like. A fellow journeyman, a fellow laborer, a man who needs the gospel just as much as everyone else needs the gospel. And you know, sometimes I'm overwhelmed when I think of how beautiful it will be to see what John saw in Revelation. That there is coming a day when we will see what was revealed to him after I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every na nation, from all of the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of the Lamb of God, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Can you imagine what that will be like? How do all of these people get there in the first place? By the power of God in the gospel. We are all who, we and all who have believed before us and who will believe after us. And God has fulfilled His covenant promise to gather us from every corner of the earth and bring us all together as one people in all the different ways that He has created us. A beautiful mosaic from all over the world displaying the creativity and the beauty of God's design. The Nair people of India, the Azerbaijani of Iran, the Hu people of China, the Dolgan people of Russia, the Masi people of Zambia, the Gadamis people of Libya, the Fulani of Nigeria, the, the Anambe of Brazil, the Navajo of America, the Eskimos of Greenland, and even even the Canadians of Toronto. There are over 17,000 people groups in this world, and from all of these peoples, God has a remnant to make up one body, one people of God, with one unifying song, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, all of these things in this sinful world that we look at that divide us, they are done away with in the kingdom of God. All of our division is cast away and there is only and always sweet, unhindered, perfect unity and communion with our God and with God's people as we commune together with Christ for all eternity. And that's why we're here, brothers and sisters. God has set us up as an outpost of heaven. Every local church is a, is a very small picture of a greater reality that awaits us. That's why it's so important for us as a church to be clear that there, this is not a church for native Effingham residents. This is not a church for people from two or three different extended families. 
This is not a church for Americans. This is not a church for the rich. This is not a church for the oppressed. This is a church for everyone who believes and everyone who will hear because the gospel is for everyone and there shouldn't be a single bit of anything I just said that would be controversial at all. Listen, I have all kinds of opinions about all kinds of things in this world. But we all better be able to lock arms inseparably when it comes to the gospel. We are the people of God. We have been transformed by the power of God in the gospel. So that means no matter what you look like, where you live, what you do, where you have been, and who you are, if you are in Christ, you are my brother, you are my sister, and we are the people of God. Right alongside Moses and Abraham and David and Solomon and Matthew and Luke and Peter and Paul and John. You're not an extra special Christian because you're a Gentile or because you are American or because you are white or black or because you are a deacon or an elder or because you have been a Christian for 50 years and you've read through your Bible 25 times. You are a Christian, period. And praise God for that because it's the most important thing in the world that you have believed the gospel, which is the power of God. And God graciously saved you and brought you into His family as one of His people that you may live and dwell with Him forever and ever. And that is all of us in perfect communion with God for all eternity. What a tremendous blessing is ours, brothers and sisters.